Section six of On Being Negro in America. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Looking back now, I know that the essence of these conflicts was distilled in my own boyhood home. My mother, who certainly would not have phrased it so, or even consciously thought it so, was an individualist. She was also the perfect embodiment of a type of Negro womanhood whose existence is still denied by those who cling to the old abasing habit of thought. Virtuous, educated, and noted for her beauty, she lived her short life in a firm belief that the moral exercise of individual initiative, imagination, and will was enough to overcome the handicap of a colored skin. I have before me now some lines she wrote, obviously thinking of her sons. And so you are a son of darker hue. Think then that God sees in your face a lesser image of his love and grace, the ills of life all meant for you. What light before you beckoning, the iron will, the open heart and mind, the hope, the wish, the thought refine, these compass points for a true reckoning. These are not a full expression of her thought, for there was enough of the chauvinist and enough of the sense of reality in her to make it clear that in her time, except in the most unusual circumstances, the limits of progress for the Negro were within the Negro world. Yet she spoke with pensive pride of Howard Drew, who had been a great college athlete, and who was then a Hartford lawyer with an entirely white clientele, and of Maria Baldwin, the Negro principal of the very estimable Agassage School in Cambridge, where many Harvard professors sent their children, and of Lillian Evans, Madame Avante, who sang opera for a season at La Scala, and even, though with less pride, for the theater was still suspect in her mind, of Bert Williams. But my father was different. He took pride in such successes, too, but it irritated him that the knowledge of them was not more widespread. He would have used them on the one hand as arguments against the white superiority theories of Lathrop Stoddard, Madison Grant, and Jerome Dowd, and on the other as arguments for his own theory that the Negro could and should develop his own American culture. I saw him brought to the verge of tears when the Brown and Stevens Bank the richest and safest Negro bank in the world, failed back in the early twenties. And this was not because he lost money in that disastrous collapse, he didn't, but because that failure cast dark shadows over the prospects of a self-sustaining Negro culture. He saw other shadows many times, but he remained, and now in his eighty-second year remains still in his heart, I think, a race chauvinist, for him there was no incongruity between this and his insistence that his sons go east to a New England college. Through all the years of my boyhood, my father was secretary of the Wilmington, Delaware branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, secretary-treasurer of the Sarah Ann White Home, now the Leighton Home, for aged colored people, and a member of the board of the local Negro YMCA, which he helped found. Besides, he had certain pet private projects, like needling the truant officer for not making colored children go to school, and upbraiding the police for permitting interracial vice to flourish in some Negro neighborhoods, and scolding fallen Negro women and derelict Negro men wherever he found them. He was buoyant and earnest and uplifted in the prosecution of these activities. What characters were drawn to our house? How desperate they were, I know now in their search for simplification and for that dignity of 
being that derives only from a sense of belonging for these simplicity and dignity are after all the true things for which men strive unable to attain them in a larger sense men slice life up into manipulatable segments institute policies of control reduced to some petty enslaving program and to slogans the great purposes of life america for americans for the advancement of colored people the true church and march uneasily toward their graves under the illusion that the particular distortion which they have been drawn is the straight and narrow path to salvation my father was like that i think that all the negroes i knew in my childhood were like that it was not altogether their fault it need not be pointed out that they had almost no say in determining the basic conditions under which they lived and that it was this common suffering that drew them together in the first place but subject to the common suffering was no mass man but classes and individuals and what they endured together they examined separately in the powerful lights of personal and class interests and ambitions and under these lights the caste principle which white society insisted on and to which the negroes were responding in the first place under these lights the caste principle broke down negroness was not itself enough the phrase we are all negroes together so often heard as a battle cry had only a sporadic potency within the negro group there were bitter conflicts and grave contradictions i remember when the tidal wave of garveyism swept over the walls my father had been hastily building against it he had not much warning as secretary of the wilmington delaware n a a c p he read and a studied the crisis the association's national organ he knew the official line was that marcus garvey was a mountebank and that his outfit swindlers preying on the poverty and ignorance of the lower classes do not the crisis said invest in the conquest of africa do not take desperate chances in flighty dreams my father knew also with increasing disquiet how fast the garvey following was growing but somehow he felt that only people of the slums could be attracted to it and he did not think of wilmington as having a real slum of course he was naif in this for a stone's throw east of our house began a noisome squalor of existence that spread like thick slime to the river when a sturdy hard-working citizen respected because he was hard-working and kept his children in school and did not let his insurance lapse came bringing my father an official invitation to join the garveyite line of march my father issued an urgent call to the members of the n a a c p for a meeting but it was too late for suddenly the garveyites were upon us they came with much shouting and blare of bugles in a forest of flags a black star centred in a red field they made speeches in the vacant lot where carnivals used to spread their tents they had a huge colorful parade and young women tensely sober of mean and plain even in their uniforms distributed millions of streamers bearing the slogan back to africa my father and i stood on the cross street below our house and watched the parade swagger by among the marchers my father spotted more than one advancer his turn even their wives and children they were not people of the slums they were people with small struggling clothes pressing shops and restaurants personal servants and what thomas j woofter jr calls black yeomen unlearned but percipient they had been dependable attendants at meetings promising negro uplift 
illoyal though perhaps somewhat awed members of the NAACP. Some of them my father had personally recruited, and low groans of dismay escaped him when he saw them in the line of march. I was a boy, but I remember, and not so much because of the parade as for what happened after. For the coming of the Garveyites shattered the defensive bulwark around the protected community of Negroes. The whites did not understand this at first, nor ever fully, accustomed as they were to thinking of the Negro as an undifferentiated caste they could not be expected to. Where there had seemed to be solidarity, there were factions. Where there had been one leadership, now there were more. Where it had been common to associate the force in the local Negro world with individuals, now the mass seemed to rear up faceless, and where no spontaneous drive had seemed to exist, now there was a hum of self-generating energy. The whites did not understand, but some of them found and took an advantage. In our district, which, with only a scattered 30% of the population white, was fast becoming a ghetto, Negroes had enjoyed political control. They had had no trouble electing one of their own to the school board, and another to the city council. The same men had been returned to office time and again. What they did there, and they did little, seemed not nearly so important as just being there. They had enormous prestige and influence among Negroes, and they had not had to fight to keep it. But in the elections of that year, they did. Directed by agents from New York, the local Garveyites put up their own candidates, chosen on class lines. The incumbents, who in the common phrase were dictees, found their following split. The campaign smelled of pitch and brimstone and led to street brawls between the sadly outnumbered teenage children of the incumbent faction and the Garveyites. Still, the whites understood only enough of what was happening to give it burlesque treatment in the press. But the agents from New York were professionals, and their professionalism soon showed itself. They made a deal with the white leaders in the ward. Before the Negroes knew anything, the whites had picked their own candidates, and while Negroes fought one another, whites won the offices. This was a blow, but that is, to put it mildly, in our town, as elsewhere in border states and northerly towns, the pattern of a strong single Negro leadership was fixed, and so I suspect was the pattern of strong single Polish and Italian and Jewish leadership, and now the white people were in a quandary. The pattern had been broken up. They themselves had knocked down the stanchion that gave stability to race relations. A bond issue was coming up, and Negro backing was indispensable to its success. Hitherto the white people had influenced the direction of Negro thought through local Negro leaders, but who were the leaders now? The white people needed them. They felt uncomfortable and even frightened without them. They needed to know and to control, if possible, what the Negroes were thinking. The race riots in northern cities, Washington, Chester, Chicago, were still green in memory, and Wilmington itself had almost plunged into that civic horror Congress just then was drumming up a Bolshevist scare, and Congressman James Burns of South Carolina had called for indictments for sedition against certain national Negro spokesmen. But the Negroes were equally lost and frightened by the immutable evidence of their own factionalism, and frightened the more that white people knew of it, so long as they could seem to maintain a solid front, no matter what internal tensions already arrived at them they felt reasonably safe. 
but now the white people can cut us up my father said we are divided it never occurred to him that the last thing in the world the white people wanted was a divided negro population enforced segregation and the caste system were proof that they did not my father who had spent more than two-thirds of his life above the mason dixon line hated segregation but he had developed the ghetto mind which made it bearable and safe a war of impulses was and is i fear going on all the time in both whites and negroes it is the symptom of an american psychological malady it is also an indictment of our culture and an offence against democracy many understand this now but most do not indeed most have built sophistic bulwarks against understanding they do not know this for the many small subtle fallacies which they abide through force of habit lessen their sense of moral conflict when they are faced with a great contradiction my father saying don't ever trust a white man is intent no different from the white man saying all niggers look alike to me the phrases represent the lowest common denominator in the american race experience they are the essence of empiricism they voice experiences so debased and so bereft of humaneness as utterly to discredit our way of life in the eyes of the world they deny the inspiring first principle of democracy that the person counts as person no matter what his color or creed son my father said the night before i went east to college remember you're a negro you'll have to do twice as much twice better than your classmates before you act think how what you do may reflect on other negroes those white people will be judging the race by you don't let the race down son i've no memory of protesting this terrible burden laid on my mind and heart indeed i am sure i did not what my father said checked with what i had been taught to feel my father went on out east you may feel it less because there are fewer negroes or for the same reason you may feel it more some say one thing some the others but no matter where you go in this country you'll never get away from being made to know that you are a negro yes sir i said we're aliens in an alien land and yet he fought the garveyite's dream of going back to africa and had applauded the deportation of emma goldman on every day of national memorial had hung out the flag and when the breezes of may the suns of july and the snows of february rent and seared it he bought another but there's some purpose in it he went on wearily god works in mysterious ways there's certainly some purpose so do your best remember you're a negro i'll remember i said knowing that i would because i had been well and exactly taught because such lessons thrust deep but feeling even then i like to think the iron unfairness of it perhaps even drawing a sorry comfort from it let many a negro boy before and since for after all it is a ready-made excuse more it is a license for all of us to live in that blind egoistic immaturity which even under the most wholesome learning we are reluctant to forego anyway twice as much twice better a negro's just as good as anybody else my father said but he's always got to prove it thus burdened i went off to college and uh, section six